Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. We've got the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. Today is Friday, July 9. Well, just ahead, Wells Fargo drops a business line and at least one powerful U.S. senator is pissed. Plus, the railroad business is slowing down, and that's good for the railroad business. And an interesting Silicon Valley technology company, Outset Medical CEO Leslie Trigg joins us. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. And listen to The Drill Down every day like so many of our listeners do. It's a lot easier when you hit the subscribe button and follow us so you can catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We do have the business stories behind Stocks in the Move. We also have our editor, Ben Wilson, with me again. Glad to have you. I mean, you're always here because people don't always get to hear you. And like this wonderful week we've had with Isaac away. It is a pleasure to have my mic unmuted. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> All right, Corey, let's get to it. Tell me the three most important developments in the world of business today. According to me, here they are, those three most important stories. Number one, all right, Biogen. Big news about Biogen. Of course, Biogen had that uh, controversial approval of a um, treatment for Alzheimer's. Well, today, Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, said that she's asked the inspector general to conduct an independent review and assessment of the agency's interaction with that uh, that uh, Alzheimer's drug maker, Biogen. Uh, the approval of that drug, of course, set off a torrent of criticism with three members of the FDA advisory panel resigning and concerns that the, did, the drug didn't really show the efficacy that everyone hopes that it would have. Now, Woodcock said on Twitter uh, on Friday that she was requesting the review because of the ongoing interesting questions about the approval of the drug, which is called Aduhelm, uh, which happened back in the early June. She said the review would focus on the interactions between the representatives of Biogen and the FDA during that process that led to that approval. Is that implying that there could have been some sort of corrupt dealings going on between Biogen and the FDA? I would say that um, I don't. So I don't think it implies that. I think that it shows that this administration wants to be really clean and they really do want to look at all of this to try to figure out if something happened and if not, to clearly clear the air. Because it is a drug, because it is a, a treatment, Biogen also um, clarified in their labeling of the product this week that it really was for early uh, cases of Alzheimer's, not all cases of Alzheimer's. At least that's what they've proven so far. Also really important is that when the drug was pr- uh, approved, it was uh, uniquely approved uh, with the condition that Biogen would continue to study its efficacy and publish those results. All right, number two. The president announced an executive order on Friday that was going to direct federal agencies 
So it's a business-focused order, and I think it's super important. Uh, it's going to ban or limit non-compete agreements, which, of course, make it harder for workers to switch jobs when they're trying to get higher pay, as well as a whole bunch of individual proposals aimed at barring unfair competition between large and small businesses. So specifically, Health and Human Services Department has been given six weeks to come up with a plan to counter high drug prices. The Agriculture Department has been directed to make it easier for cow, pig, and poultry farmers to sue slaughterhouses. I prefer to call them abattoirs, but that's me. In any case, it's going to be easier to sue them uh, if you're a farmer uh, and easier to sue them if you've been underpaid or suffer retaliation from changing whom you sell to. And the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, have been instructed to establish rules for internet providers and tech companies about data use. All this in one executive order um, that, uh, again, was uh, is the headlines mostly about these non-compete agreements. I don't even remember this, Ben, when Jimmy John's, the sandwich joint, their franchises in New York and, and other franchises were told to, or they the, the corporation helped those franchises have these non-compete agreements for the fast food workers there, forbidding employees from working for any other fast food joints within a three-mile radius for two years after leaving the company. So if you wanted to go down the street and work at Burger King, another lousy job, yeah, they could prohibit you from sue you for doing that. Uh, the New York Attorney General got involved, and the company did agree to stop doing that and stop giving the the forms to other franchisees. But this non-compete thing has really gotten silly. And, you know, what does it do? It holds down the potential pay of workers, which is good for no one except the corporations. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, so uh, interesting change. We'll see how much uh, effect the federal government can have with that, however. All right, third most important business story of the day. More focus on the Chinese Cyberspace Administration. Um, now, that, of course, is the organization that um, came out and said that DD Global, right after their IPO, could no longer solicit new customers in China until they passed a, a review. Well, they came out today and announced they're going to remove 25 more apps that were operated by DD Global saying those apps illegally collected personal data, uh, another regulatory action against DD by the Chinese Cyberspace Administration. Those apps targeted on Friday included DD app for carpools, for drivers, for financing. But there's been a lot of talk about how this affects big companies, Alibaba, Tencent, DD. But I want to suggest a different way to look about this, Ben. I'm not going to go off on a rant, but it's not just Chinese regulators who want to make it harder for Chinese companies to list and sell shares in the U.S. There's also American lawmakers, such as Marco Rubio, Florida, who's been stepping up calls uh, to block Chinese firms from going public in the U.S. because they don't submit to U.S. audit requirements like U.S. companies. Now, I'm not saying in any way that DD is a fraud or any of those other companies I just mentioned, but there have been dozens, even some say hundreds, of shady stock listings of Chinese companies in the U.S., taking money from U.S. taxpayers and investors and not submitting to certified audits like U.S. companies are forced to. And many of those stocks traded way up before falling to zero and getting delisted. Now, to be clear, I made a lot of money shorting these stocks in my days um, when I was a, a, a purely a fund manager. And um, uh, I'm not short any of those stocks right now, nor am I long any of those stocks right now. But, well, I suggest watching the documentary, The China Hustle. It's on Hulu. And uh, it, you can rent it on Amazon Prime. And it features our recent guest, Dan David. You'll get a sense of what went on and why fewer U.S.-listed Chinese companies might not be a bad thing. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Mighty, 
or mightily humbled Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. Shares were up 4% today, and for the last 12 months, shares are up 83%. And we talked about this briefly in our news segment just the other day. What's the deeper story with Wells Fargo? Yeah, we talked about it uh, yesterday, and um, they are shutting down all their existing personal credit lines, uh, their lines of credit, in the coming weeks. And CNBC first reported that we talked about it on the show briefly yesterday. These revolving credit lines let users borrow somewhere between $3,000 to $100,000 in some cases, and they were sold to consumers as a way to get rid of high-interest credit card debt or pay for a home renovation or just linking to their checking account so they could borrow from the line of credit and not have to pay overdraft fees. Um, and they're yanking all of those. I thought we could dig into that a little bit more. Absolutely. I saw that Senator Elizabeth Warren was upset about this. Uh, she tweeted, not a single customer should see their credit score suffer just because their bank is restructuring after years of scams and incompetence. Scams and incompetence. I love how she actually goes there. Um, this company, uh, uh, she might be right in calling it scams and incompetence, not least of which opening millions of accounts for customers who didn't want them open. Let's talk about how the credit um, can get worse for an individual who has one of those personal lines of credit. If you have, let's say, $500,000 available to you in credit and you've got you know, a $100,000 line with um, Wells Fargo that you never tapped, if that line goes away and you've only got $400,000 available to you in credit, your credit score could get used because you may have used some of that. It could get worse because you may have used some of that. So um, the question is, is that going to happen for some of our customers? How many customers? We don't have answers to any of that. Companies said very little about this. But they are, uh, they are operating under a consent degree. And everything that they are doing is under reevaluation. And I think that that's probably the way that the company looks at it, not so much what are they doing to these customers, rather what businesses should they be in and how can they limit those businesses and cut overhead. Because they're under this consent degree, decree, and they should be, they've had to limit how much they can grow their, their balance sheet, how many deposits they can take. Indeed, they've actually had to get rid of some business lines just to shrink the size of the bank because the consent degree puts a limit on their balance sheet, and yet federal stimulus has gone into the pockets of so many individuals and into their bank accounts. And so many companies are doing so well um, that they've seen a lot of increase in deposits and not a lot of other credit going out. So uh, Charlie Scharf, the newish CEO there, two years on the job, he might be looking at this just as another way to cut expenses, which he's been ruthlessly doing since taking over the company in 2019. Here he is talking about the process of what to get rid of at Wells Fargo just a few weeks ago. We have a significant amount of savings uh, coming from optimization of our organization, meaning just literally looking at spans and layers of management. It sounds like a kind of crazy thing from the outside to look at, but when you just look at how many direct reports people have in the company, how many layers they have in the company, of our savings, roughly 35% or something is just coming from uh, rationalizing those numbers more to what a bunch of us have seen at other places. Um, you know, we have multiple platforms uh, in places like our uh, our uh, uh, cash management businesses um, and opportunities to generate efficiencies and digitize, you know, some of the operational functions we have both in our home lending and our commercial banks. So, you know, it's very, very basic stuff, uh, which, again, comes from how do we just run a more efficient place? And by the way, as we do these things, it reduces the risk inside the company because we wind up automating more um, and it makes it easier for us to serve our customers, quite frankly. So I guess that's how he looks at it. I, I did hear a little bit of a, like, 
we, those of us who've worked in other places know how things really ought to be done. And you rubes working for the San Francisco bank, it's worth noting that Charlie has not moved to the Bay Area, still lives in New York while he's running this San Francisco-based financial firm. Um, he's brought in hundreds of people at the top levels. He's gotten rid of lots of middle management and lots of senior management, not least of which the well-regarded chief financial officer, John Shrewsbury. Um, and they've had a big change in the board, but I think this might be just another business unit that they're whacking in this effort to shrink the size of Wells Fargo. Corey, what was it that caused or allowed Wells Fargo to get to this place where they have to make so many changes? Well, I mean, just it is, to it's meet you know, the standards of other banks. Well, the consent decree is the biggest part, right? They have to shrink their balance sheet. They just can't keep growing as much as they want to grow. But also their shady behavior is what led to this consent decree. You know, opening up millions of accounts for consumers who they, that they didn't ask for um, was just really poor practice. And it's also interesting that the Fed's punishment of limiting their balance sheet was really effective, really effective in finally getting this board and then the management of the company to make some changes. Corey, what is your next drill down? Greenbrier Companies. Do you know this business? Uh, I do not. I have never heard of it. It trades with the ticker GBX. Shares were up 8% today, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 99%. What's the story with Greenbrier? The Greenbrier makes and repairs and leases rail cars. We have heard from so many companies in the last few weeks about how strained the supply chain is. Of course, was the dramatic case of the ship stuck in the Suez Canal, but there are problems across all types of shipping, trucking, shipping, rail, shipping containers, availability of shipping containers, all kinds of problems across the supply chain. But that is to say the supply chain is overworked and that's good for a maker of rail cars. And so they reported a quarter, uh, Q3 ended at the end of May, 450 million of revenues compared to 296 million the quarter before. So a substantial increase. Their deliveries of rail cars up 65% because of higher production levels of cars and obviously improving demand. Their orders for rail cars, they had 3,800 units ordered. They delivered only 3,300 units. That means you got a book to bill, right? So they have more sales booked than they actually were able to produce. Um, that's the second quarter. They've had a positive book to bill um, over one. And uh, that's all kinds of units. It's the intermodal units, the tank cars, the box cars, covered hoppers. Ben, you know covered hoppers. Usually holds grain. <laughs> I and stuff do like not. That. Maybe I'd recognize are, it if I saw it. You probably recognize it if you see it. It's kind of a it's a taller uh, a rail car that's got a cover on it and sort of it holds loose stuff like grain mm. and so on, as opposed yeah. to an open car that's got um, a gravel or something like coal or something like that. Well, coal actually is covered. It's a whole different story. In any case, the new rail car backlog was. 24,800 units, $2.6 billion in backlog for these guys. So they got a lot of orders for a long time to come. And they interestingly said that the average speed of rail cars, of, of railroads right now is, is down um, two miles an hour over the previous quarter. And what does that mean? That means that the rails are busy and that means we need more cars to stay, to hold stuff because they don't get emptied as quickly. So just that little bit of a slowdown, two miles an hour, means more business for these guys at Greenbrier. Um, and they also interestingly and finally talked about how a V-shaped recovery is both bad, with some expenses go up, but good for this company. Here's CEO Bill Furman. I think 
there's a, a variety of risks in such a V-shaped uh, type of a recovery that are just obvious. Uh, hiring more people, training them, bringing them back, uh, keeping them safe, uh, having no execution blips. It's more of those blocking and tackling things that we have to cope with. And then, of course, the widely advertised uh, surge in pricing. As that pricing moderates uh, in the in 2022, we, uh, we, we think uh, it'll be more normalized. The last thing I'd say is that uh, these things are not bad at all for a company in the leasing business with assets because leasing is a, a traditional hedge against uh, inflation. And it, uh, the things we're seeing today makes a used rail car more valuable. It uh, makes a lease, it puts a floor under lease rates and pushes them up. Uh, it gives some uh, mixed benefits and the rest. But as far as the risk is concerned, they're all manageable. It's just it's the steep curve going down and then the steep curve coming up in a 100-year pandemic event. So. Interesting take there that they've got kind of a financial structure built in that because they own their stuff, they can jack the rates and, and benefit from an inflationary environment. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Levi, my neighbor here in San Francisco, Levi Strauss and Company right up the street. Levi, which is also the ticker. Levi Strauss shares are up 1% today, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 128%. What's the story with Levi? Or Ben, I have a conundrum. What do I wear? I'm in audio, not video anymore. I'm not doing TV hits, but I'm not going to dress like those slobs in radio. I just can't. I'm no Baba Booey. Love me some Gary Delbate, but still. I had an old rock and roll t-shirt. Oh, Corey, that, I that think... Me. <laughs> Your voice is professional and approachable, and I think your dress and attire has matched, and I appreciate that. But I really, I honestly am torn, right? So I'm never a tie guy, but the sports coat and the old man dress shirt that I used to rock on TV, I don't know. I mean, during the pandemic, it was, you know, surfer stuff, right? Because I was on the beach, and, you know, that doesn't cut it in my office. I'm back in the office since April. I'm not alone coming back to the office any longer. And Levi Strauss, on this call, so they had a quarterly call for uh, the report of their, their most recent earnings, very strong quarter, and they sort of said, I'm not alone in my predicament, in my predicament, because they're, they're, uh, uh, from their perspective, we're in a new cycle, not a COVID cycle or a weather cycle or a V-shaped economy cycle. We are in a new denim cycle. That's a thing, Ben, a denim cycle. Did you know this? It sounds like you're talking about uh, settings on a washing machine. Uh, perhaps that makes plenty of sense, more sense than what the CEO had to say. But they've had this great strong recovery at Levi's because people are getting out again. And um, I thought it was interesting to look at whether the recovery in clothing is going to be towards clothing we didn't wear during the pandemic. Right? We heard that recently from Urban Outfitters that people are going back to wider cut jeans, that they were going for more comfortable leggings. Women at least uh, were during the pandemic. Or are they going to actually start dressing up and facing a conundrum that I'm facing? What do you wear when you go back to the office? And you've gotten used to 18 months of casual wear. Well, this company says confidently that we're not going to go back to formal wear. And rather, we are in this new denim cycle. Here is CEO Charlie Berg. We can confidently say that we're in the early innings of a new denim cycle. Um, I've got a lot of confidence in the sustainability and our ability to, to continue the momentum that we've seen through this quarter. Um, the, you know, the strong results reflect an industry-wide denim resurgence, 
that is being driven by several things. One is, you know, the continuation of the casualization trend. And I would say that that's occurring more on a global basis than just inside the U.S. Um, you know, as the pandemic uh, fog lifts and more people get vaccinated, the return to social activities as the lockdowns lift, you know, people are now starting to go back to the office in many parts of the world. Uh, all of this creates a new wardrobe opportunity. Uh, and I have talked about the fact that uh, this is U.S. data, but about 35 percent of consumers in the U.S. have changed waist sizes. Um, and some of it is up and some of it is down. But either way, it, 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 it creates another reason for people to go out and, and update their wardrobe. 35% of the U.S. has changed waist sizes. That's an astounding I would love number to know what that percentage is on a normal year, because I certainly fall into that category this year. Well, um, me too. I don't know if it's up or down, or at least I'm not saying. But, because, you know, I'm not going to body shame anyone. But in any case, mm-hmm. um, I think that's the fast, most fascinating number we'll probably hear. You want you want your cocktail party. You want your barbecue. Uh, guess what I heard on the Drill Down podcast moment. This is it. 35% of waist sizes changed in the U.S. last year. And that's good news for Levi's. All right, up next, our guest, a super interesting Silicon Valley med tech business, Outset Medical and its CEO, Leslie Trigg. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with the Business Podcast Network on LinkedIn and check out our website, bizpod.net, to let us know what stocks you think we should be drilling down. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down. Our guest is Outset Medical CEO, Leslie Trigg. Leslie, uh, thanks for joining us. You have a really interesting uh, company, um, and I've, I continue to find the world of dialysis interesting. I don't know why that's the case. But you guys have a really novel approach to the treatment of dialysis. I, I would normally start the interview by saying, how do you guys make money? But you lose buckets and buckets of money to this point in the game, although it's getting better. So how, what is the business model for, uh, for Onset Medical? Maybe start with just describing the device that you guys sell. Sure. Well, Outset Medical is a medical technology company. We're based here in the Bay Area. And we have developed a technology to lower the cost and complexity of dialysis. Um, When you take a look at the space, it's been marked by a couple things. One, there has been very little to no innovation in the technology over the last 30 years. That's one of the first things I noticed when I started learning about it is, well, where's all the new tech? You know, we're we're still using equipment from the 80s. And that over time, as the population grew substantially um, that needed dialysis, we're now up to about 600,000 people just in the U.S. on dialysis. Um, that the care delivery model hadn't really changed. People were still having to travel to dialysis clinics three times a week, um, kind of with assembly line care um, with very little choice. And so we decided to figure out how to use. Right, there's like two, basically two main providers yes. of that. Yeah, there are two two yeah. primary providers here in the U.S. But so the the original vision was: could we use technology to simplify um, and ultimately create more choice about where, when, and how people could dialyze? 
What is the growth like in, in terms of the number of people needing treatment, needing uh, dialysis? So in the U.S., it's about 600,000 people on dialysis and several million who right. have chronic kidney disease, which progresses over time. Um, and so dialysis is really fueled, unfortunately, by diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. N none of those three conditions are on the decline. And so most people... Uh, <laughs> said, said nicely, yes. <laughs> Bull market in these horrible right, conditions, right. Uh, the way we're living in this yeah. country. Um, and, and there, and and you know, and transplants are not a growth industry, despite the you know, uh, what seventeen thousand I think a year transplants that's for kidneys. Right. So it's it, the dialysis is the only the only uh, name right. In town. That's right for for now. And 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 there's certainly very interesting um, scientific work going on around bioimplantables. And could we ever get to an artificial kidney? I hope so. Um, that's not something we see sort of on the ten year horizon, but but maybe on the twenty year horizon. Um, so. Hopefully, dialysis will not be the primary modality um, for in our lifetime, but but for today, it's it's a life sustaining therapy. So let's go further into this kind of standard of care now. So uh, we'll, we'll get to your device, which seems like it's a lot simpler and and as a single machine that runs on electricity and water, tap water. What is the standard of care in a in a dialysis treatment center or a hospital? Well, a little a little different in both settings. In the hospital, let's say in the ICU. Um, hospitals and health systems actually have to buy and maintain a couple different types of machines because the way that they evolved, there were three or four different machines, all of which did one type of treatment. And it, they did that one type of treatment very, very well. But a health system, let's say like Sutter, you know, in the Bay Area, they probably have to have three or four different types of machines that they buy and maintain. Um, what we did effectively was a technology rollout. Is that because the, the what's happening in the kidney is different in different cases? No, it's really not. And and I can't explain the history of you know why one machine only did long treatment and then why another machine only does short treatments. I, I, I really don't know. But in terms of the technology evolution, what was missing, what we felt was missing in the market was a single hardware platform that could do any type of dialysis treatment um, from zero to 24 hours in any setting from the ICU to the home. And so that that's what we felt like we could we could contribute um, to the space. And so the way that dialysis is done in the hospital uh, with Tableau, our device is called Tableau, enables um, right. a nurse to just roll it up to the bedside on the floor um, or use it in the ICU, also at a, at a much lower cost for the health system. Um, and then, yeah, go and, ahead. No, please, no, please continue. In the in the clinic setting, the vast majority, I would say today, about eighty eight percent of patients still have to go to a clinic to get dialysis. Um, about 12% do dialyze at home. And in the home, uh, dialysis can be done in one of two ways. One is peritoneal dialysis through your abdomen, and the other is hemodialysis through the circulatory system. And there are two, two machines that are approved today uh, prior to the FDA clearance of Tableau for home. So Tableau for the home is interesting because uh, most of your revenues, as I understand it now, actually come from the uh, devices sold to, uh, is it just a sale? the hospitals. Uh, that's system. right. Yeah. The, the, and, and that's because we, well, we launched and commercialized in the acute setting first because our first FDA clearance was for the use um, in hospitals and health right. systems. So the majority of our revenue today is there. We got FDA clearance for the home in uh, the spring of 2020. And so we're just in the early stages of, of rolling it out in home. Pun intended, because it is literally a device that kind of rolls out in wheels and it's the size of a big garbage can from what <laughs> I see. Um, uh, I'm sure you have something more elegant to describe. Yeah, not my it, favorite but. analogy. <laughs> uh, that's a new one. It's like a rolling garbage can. Okay, thanks a lot. Um. <laughs> it looks lovely. It's it's uh, as far as that, that would go. But I, I've I've got to imagine for someone who's dealing with kidney treatments, just just having when you've got kidney disease, just having to get up 
and get out and get to the this facility or get to the hospital three times a week, it's going to be horrible. It's not fun. And and really what we've heard so many patients say um, in, in various forms is they end up living to dialyze and you're supposed to be dialyzing to live. And that's that's effectively what we believe home really offers is uh, the not only the convenience and the flexibility, but the control. I, I think when we we take control for granted in our everyday life and when when you go right. on dialysis, you're effectively robbed of, of control and agency. You're told literally where, what, what location. You're told what time, what day, even what chair you're going to sit in. You can't even choose your own chair. You're told which technician's going to help you. You're told you can't touch anything on the machine. Don't, if it's alarming, if there's lights flashing, like don't touch it. Um, and you're really, you know, you are robbed, therefore, of, of I think, identity and, and erosion of self-worth over time. And so I don't want to get too philosophical, but what we're ultimately after is kind of a restoration of, of dignity and self-worth um, by enabling people to take back control over their own care, which, by the way, people have complete control over diabetes. Um, they have a lot of control over you know, COPD. There's so many disease conditions which have been much more consumerized, um, and dialysis needs to catch up. And so that's that's kind of the, mor- the central moral mission of the company. Now, when you're... Um, uh and I, you didn't go too far. I thought that was perfect because I, I can't even imagine what that situation is like for those people. Um, what, when you're when you're selling in a hospital, who are you competing against? So in the hospital environment, uh, we're competing against the incumbent devices from Baxter and from Fresenius. And then in the home, which is no, they're no joke to compete against, right? I mean, they've they've been selling they sell a lot of stuff to a lot of. Uh, acute care facilities and hospitals, um, and they've probably got a lot of market. Absolutely, power and two great companies. You know, we're both very well run and and very well regarded with a with a long history of serving patients really, really well. Um, in the home, uh, similar di- uh, competitive dynamic. Baxter makes the peritoneal through the abdomen um, uh, version of of home, and then Fresenius has a home device cleared a, a, a company that they acquired a couple years back. And so, so very similar competitive dynamics actually in the acute and the home for Cineas and Baxter. And so, what's your sort of competitive edge then? What's how do you how do you win in those in that kind of competitive competitive set? In the acute space, uh, the technology just does something that the other devices don't do. It's it is the it is the only device that's the same hardware whether it's in the ICU or the home. So there's a lot of operating efficiencies in that for hospitals. Two, there's just tremendous cost reduction. So we enable hospitals to cut the cost of their dialysis service by 50 to 75%. Um, Probably what's important for me to say really quickly is uh, when hospitals deliver dialysis in the inpatient setting, it is not reimbursed at all. So it is a pure play cost center for them. If the patient comes in for some other type of procedure, let's say the cardiovascular procedure and they need dialysis while they're there, the hospital eats the cost of that. So it effectively erodes margin across a whole bunch of different admissions. So the hospital um, interest in lowering the cost of dialysis, therefore, is very, very high. Wait, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to run that scenario again. So you've got somebody who's obese so, or somebody who's got some really serious health problems. And while they're in a hospital stay, they're also going to need some dialysis done. The hospital is going to wheel the machine in, administer the dialysis, and get no reimbursement from insurance That's correct. for that. There is, there is no separate wow. DRG for dialysis. Uh, yes. And so we, we took a look at data from 2018 and there were 600 different types of admissions that ended up involving dialysis. And the average cost or loss is five to $15,000 uh, on dialysis against those admissions. And so 
um, a, a very high percentage of those admissions that involve dialysis actually are um, the, the hospital takes a loss. It's a, it has a negative margin associated with it. Um, that's that's they, I'm sure they don't like that. Yeah. So I'm sure they're glad to have your help bailing them out of that situation. Um, you guys have had uh, so now that you move to the home, how do you sell that product? Because it's got to be an entire it might even be the exact same device, but it's entirely different way to sell it. Well, it doesn't have to be. So I think the conventional wisdom in the past is that, yes, it's a different customer base. It's a different sale. We looked at it a little bit differently and thought about, you know, the health systems are really uniquely positioned to actually start managing the patient in the home. And actually, there's a, a, lot, a much larger macro trend of uh, called ho- kind of the hospital to home movement. And a number of companies in that space that have recently gone public or been very well uh, privately financed. And so health systems are already moving more care into the home and taking responsibility for chronic care management. So our commercial entry point really is actually through the health systems and helping health systems hospitals set up um, home dialysis programs and allowing them to incrementally add a new revenue stream that's chronic, predictable, nicely complementary to a more elective procedure volume. So rather than saying to them, make it easier for your patients or your customers, make it uh, cheaper for your business. You're, you're sort of saying, here's a steady revenue stream you can, you can tap Right, into. instead of maybe distributing that revenue stream to some of the conventional players in the market, um, the health system is in a great position to, we think, kind of better manage the, the total cost of care because they are very skilled at reducing hospitalizations, reducing ER visits, reducing med use, and then you're really lowering kind of the totality of caring for that patient overall for the health system. Now, you guys have, uh, I mentioned the losses. I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of interested from a Wall Street perspective, but w- how does the business model, you guys have lost just boatloads of money as your sales have increased fantastically. Um, presumably the goal at some point is to lose less money. Um, <laughs> you, you went to business school, you, you know this. Um, what, what's, the, what's the key to that? What's, what's the change at your business model? What, if I looked at your business model five or 10 years from now, what would look different? Well, let's back up and talk about what, what do we actually sell. So we sell, uh, we manufacture and sell the console. Right. And then we manufacture and sell disposables. And the disposables are used uh, during every treatment. So it's that classic razor, razor blade model. In order to make the razor very, very simple, it has involved a lot of complex sensors, software, data analytics, and pretty sophisticated um, electrical mechanical components inside. So the, um, the focus of cost reduction has principally been around the console. One of the moves that we made, and this gets to what's your roadmap and, and, and how, do you, how do you get to positive margins, is, um, and it's a pretty standard playbook, moving manufacturing to a, a lower labor cost area. We set up our own manufacturing facility south of the border in Mexico, um, getting much smarter and um, accessing greater market power over our, with our suppliers on the supply chain side. And then looking at, you know, selected, I would say, bill of materials changes where we in the early days had very highly custom components that now that we're at greater scale can be replaced with uh, more standard off the shelf versions of the same component. So I I would say the good news here is it doesn't require magical thinking. We don't need to um, really do a lot of reinvention. It's really just um, using our growing scale due to the, you know, the rapid um, uh, rise in the market adoption and our revenue growth. I would imagine the giants in dialysis treatment, the Davidas in the world, don't like the notion that 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 you, you the, the the service that they offer in their in their massive facilities all over the country wouldn't be needed, and that people actually just get it at home. 
Well, I think the Davidas of the world will always be needed. Uh, they're, they're, we're not looking at, a, a pro, I would say, unfortunately, but it's just not the case that 100% of the patients are going to be able to go home, right? You've got a diversity in um, acuity, um, age, uh, general physical competencies. Um, so I, I would never envision a future where dialysis clinics cease to exist, maybe until we get to that bioimplantable kidney of the future. But um, I think that there is, there's just an opportunity to really expand in even for them, create more operating leverage. If you have a, a, a clinic A and that clinic has 20 seats and it will forever have 20 seats in it, but you can also send 50 patients home. You're also, you know, then spreading out your labor overhead, your, your fixed cost over 70 patients as opposed to 20. So we actually see a lot of opportunity for the conventional players to benefit from um, sending more patients home in terms of their operating leverage. And I should ask, ask all, what has happened during COVID for your company and how has it changed um, what you, because, you know, you guys went public in the midst of all this and, and you know, in a week when that gave us the Snowflake and JFrog, you guys also went public in the midst of it. Um, but I but I wonder what has really changed for your business during COVID and, and, and the growth trajectory, because it's, it's hard to get out there and tell your story to new customers in a new world when the whole world shut down. I think that the probably the biggest COVID impact has been that hospitals, um, while they've always been interested in cost reduction, that has shot to the top of the list. I, I, I can't think of a hospital in America that was not um, penalized um, or made more vulnerable by by COVID as as the top line revenue eroded and became much much less predictable. And so what we saw was um, a, a much much higher prioritization of all things that were related to strategic cost reduction initiatives. So we have a nice story to tell there. Probably the second COVID impact for us was maybe more indirect. It did give a lot of visibility and awareness to Tableau. Um, it really allowed Tableau to sort of showcase what it does best. I mean, because it's so simple and it was really designed for consumers, in the in the height of the pandemic, we showed that we were able to train in the hospital setting nurses in you know two or three hours where a conventional machine might take seven or eight weeks. Um, and that we were able to treat patients um, in, in conditions that uh, where you, you really only had a faucet and electrical outlet and, and Tableau was able to do that. So I think it gave us a lot more visibility and awareness that that um, that then allowed our sales team to kind of capitalize on it and accelerate the pipeline. Interesting. Um, we'll keep an eye on this and see how that pipeline is accelerated. All right, Leslie, thank you very much. That was Outset Medical's CEO, Leslie Trigg. Well, up next, the drill down bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. Let's talk about kidney disease. You won't believe, at least I was certainly shocked when I looked at how many people suffer from chronic kidney disease across the world. According to the global burden of disease, well, all right, that's the bite, that's the drill down bite. What percentage of the global population suffers from chronic kidney disease? I'll tell you when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And tell your friends about the drill down. Let them know what they're missing. Hey, uh, why don't you leave a review on your favorite podcast provider, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or Pandora or Amazon. Let someone else know what you like about this show. And subscribe to us and catch every episode. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Here's the number, 
10% of the global population suffers from chronic kidney disease and millions die every year because they don't have access to affordable treatments. That's according to the Global Burden of Disease Study cited by the National Kidney Foundation. Uh, just huge numbers in, in, you know, in affluent countries, people receive treatment in, in other, the rest of the world, they just don't. Two million people receive treatment, treatment for kidney failure. The majority are in five, only five countries, US, Japan, Germany, Brazil, and Italy. Um, and you know that's only 12% of the world population, but that's uh, a substantial uh, portion of those who receive treatment for kidney disease. But it shows you what a, what a big business this, this could be for uh, Outset. All right, well, thank you for listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.